0: Malcolm Harris is a journalist and the author of Palo Alto, a history of California, capitalism, and the world. This is Malcolm Harris. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here uh, once again with Malcolm Harris. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me back, Duncan.
0: Yeah, so you you have written a book recently um called Palo Alto, a history of California Capitalism and the World. Um you're you're from Palo Alto originally. Well, why do you think, uh given, you know, sort of the political bent uh and the the industry in Palo Alto, well why do you think you turned out the way you did?
1: <laughs> well, as I try and tell the well, first of all, turned out, you know, I'm I'm 34, you know, still trying to, try and yeah. turn out. So we'll in see. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, but I try and tell the story of the tension between uh, capital and labor in this story. Right. And the, the tension between the forces of accumulation and the forces that fight back anti-accumulation and, um, and Palo Alto is at the center of really intense sort of volumes of both kinds of forces. It's a center for capitalist power. But something I didn't really realize until I was doing this work is that the entire, almost the entire duration, it's been a center of left wing activity as well. Uh, and so for me, it's not that surprising. In fact, when I look back uh, on the history of Palo Alto, like very particularly there are a lot of like five foot six eastern european communist jews who like cause havoc in palo alto and this is a recurring figure uh like throughout the place's history and so i felt like oh yeah like there's me uh, you know not to compare myself to some of these great characters or whatever but uh i definitely found people i could identify with so i don't feel like i didn't come away from it being like i have nothing i'm a new original uh, entry into Palo Alto history, I'm like, oh, I'm in mean, this is a tradition that's much deeper and more specific than I, I had imagined when I started the project.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that you sort of explore in this book is that there are a lot of like interesting contradictions about this place. And I think sort of like uh, on uh, like a superficial level, it seems like when you're talking about labor exploitation in Palo Alto, like, okay, Steve Wozniak is designing these chips, but a bunch of undocumented immigrants in basements are actually putting them together. Those kinds of things feel like common to basically like sort of every industry and every place. Um what is unique then about Palo Alto in this respect?
1: Well, Palo Alto is is uh leading on a lot of these trends. So it's, it's true, like looking back on it now, we think of that as now that's a standard labor relation, right? That's everywhere, not even just in this country, but around the world. But at the time it represented for capital real progress. And so Xerox invests $100,000 at the time in Apple and not only that $100,000, but it, as part of that investment shares access to Xerox Park technology with Apple. And that technology really becomes the basis for the personal computer that Apple builds and the personal computer era is this technology transfer from Xerox, which is this old industrial research company uh, to Apple, which is the, a new California tech company. You know, Xerox is from Rochester, uh, Rochester, New York. And they make this transfer, right? And they make this investment because Apple's uh, labor management, uh, is so much more advanced than theirs. They're still dealing with like big union contracts with their manufacturing workforce and their labor costs are really high and it wasn't going to work to produce something for the consumer market, which is where the personal consumer personal computer was going. So if you're making like, you know, very, very expensive, big mainframe computers that you're selling to large institutions, you can afford to support, uh, you know, high-priced manufacturing union workers, you can afford to uh, support maintenance technicians and salesmen, and there's like all this, a huge amount of overhead and a huge amount of labor overhead to that production model. And Apple comes in and says like, look, you can just like contract this out to a bunch of women in their kitchens uh, in the Bay Area. Like this is the future of manufacturing, right? And so that's what that's what uh, Xerox is investing in with Apple. And I was surprised how often, throughout this history, Palo Alto and the industry is playing that kind of role all the way back to the beginning. Just constantly, this real leadership role for global capital—not uh, just national capital, but global capital—from uh, the really from the beginning, from its switch from being like the real hinterland of the capitalist system halfway through the 19th century where like no one could even colonize that place. And le- it's like a light switch goes on, right? And it becomes the center of global capitalism into the present. And I thought there was gonna be a, a, a lot of like metaphorical jumps that I was gonna have to make along that process, you know? Like this is kind of like that, uh, but it's really consistent and really steady. And it's so short. That you can draw real straight lines between the characters throughout this history.
0: Totally, yeah. And it, it's interesting how even small things, like uh, you're talking about early on in the book, some like the first settlers, uh, like uh, this guy, like Johann Sutter. I think I'm getting that mm-hmm. name right. Uh, he would he, he would ring a bell and and summon sort of like the Native American workers to come, and that was for them. That was the first time that they were like on a clock. And they had that sort of mechanical relationship to time, where something as like simple a form of technology as like a clock really changing how people operate in the world and like changing their you know labor relations, etc. Um so I it sounds to me then like what you're saying that's unique about Palo Alto, uh in terms of like industry is Maybe like how technology is used, uh, like they're at like the cutting edge of what's like new in capitalism.
1: Yeah, well, and it becomes, it's this place, and I start the the book with an epigraph from Karl Marx, where he talks about, again, at the begin, middle of the 19th century talking about, I need to learn about California, because capitalism has never happened so fast anywhere in the world as it's happening now in California. And that was totally true. It happened because it had uh, a relatively blank slate in terms of class society built up in this place. Like there was some, some, uh, you know, Spanish feudalism on the coast, but it was very coastal uh, colonial presence. It was very weak. Uh, They lose control to revolutionary Mexico, which again, like very weak control at the far northern end of the Mexican nation and the like. predominant labor relation was 150,000 indigenous people in California, uh, You know, mostly still living off the land for most of the time. Even when they were brought into the sort of feudal mission uh, labor relations under some circumstances for parts of the year, uh, they still had a, an indigenous relation to the land and its productivity. When capitalists, Anglo-American capitalists come in, that changes, again, like a light switch. Like they bulldoze the whole thing effectively and put in not just like market society, but finance capital from the beginning. So if you're like a militia guy in the 1860s hunting indigenous people off the land so that you can get your piece of land from the government, you're not thinking like, Oh, I'm going to build a cabin there. I'm going to raise my family on this like piece of California. You're thinking I'm going to lease the timber concession to the timber company. And I'm going to like get some passive income off my share of California. Because uh, from the beginning, it was about speculation in this the future value of the natural resources and the real estate value of the land. And so you see, like, yeah, mid-19th century talking about, hey, you guys should really buy some land here in the South Bay because most people on the East Coast haven't even heard of this place. And as soon as they hear about it, you're going to get three, four times as much money as you got, like, real quick. And so it wasn't about like building this place forever and how you were gonna settle there and build a future for your family. It was like like, get rich quick scheme based on financial speculation. Even for the guys who were building the railroad, like they didn't even wanna build the railroad. They got stuck building the railroad because no one else would like buy it from them. And they were like ready to bail out every step of the way. They're like, oh, we could just convert it to a toll road and just sell that or, you know, like, Every time people are trying to to cash out, and there are a few exceptions uh, like the the Bank of Italy, which becomes the Bank of America, is really invested in the long time growth, long term growth of the state, um, as are parts of Stanford University. But in terms of like the individual capitalists, they're like constantly trying to cash out from the beginning. Like the kind of capitalism that uh, emerges in California, really from the beginning of this Anglo American period is super advanced.
0: Yeah. Well, why? Like when you talk about like you thinking that you may have to like make metaphorical leaps and stuff like that and not having to things like the gold rush seem you can draw like a straight line between that and like crypto bubbles. Like, w- w- why is that? Is that just like a, a cultural hangover uh, from the way that uh, like California was settled um, or, or like w- what is going on here?
1: No, I mean, and that's the thing. Like you'd think you'd be, people, and people do this all the time with the gold rush, especially, because it's such a great metaphor. And so you can use it for the like the rush of capital and labor into any new space can be characterized as a gold rush. And because you have this like regional uh, resonance with stuff in California, it's very easy to be like, oh, it's a gold rush. Oh, it's a gold rush. Oh, it's a gold rush. Uh, but then you like, so that's the, the metaphorical connection, but then you look at like, okay, so the Gold Rush funds Leland Stanford Junior University, which is this, this institution that has held that land the entire time since there, uh, very directly. And that's the, like that uh, piece of land has been the basis for the ton of contemporary wealth creation, including a ton of crypto wealth creation. So where is Sam Bankman freed? Where does he grow up? He grows up on Stanford land. His parents don't own his house because they can't own his house because Stanford University owns that land in perpetuity and cannot sell it because of this covenant with its beginning, uh, with uh, with its foundation by the Stanford uh, couple. And so you have the you know the foundation for like the big part of the crypto industry in the person of Sam Bankman-Fried is literally this gold rush wealth continued into the present, right? He like grew up on the land purchased with this gold rush wealth. Uh, and so like that, and you can find tons and tons and tons of those and more fine grained like very specific links. So like the guy who starts sil- puts the Silicon in Silicon Valley is William Shockley Jr. His parents are what, Stanford-trained mining engineers, <laughs> you know? Why, are, why does Stanford excel in training mining engineers? Well, because it was founded by Gold Rush mining and like that's where mining uh, technology advancement uh, found a lot of investment capital that could be readily applied to these new silver strikes as well as the original Gold Rush. And again, like these are not metaphorical connections, these are direct connections
0: okay yeah but why like these wild enthusiasms in terms of like you know huge hype and then huge let like bubble burst um is this am i wrong in saying that this is like just like uh, uh, like particularly like unique to silicon valley um like in terms of like the dramatic nature of the enthusiasms
1: uh well it's not that it's unique too because it's it's characterizes the like whole system itself uh you know capitalism is a system of boom and bust type crises um and you can go back to tulips and you can go back to the 16th century and 17th century if you want to certainly define like commodity booms and busts and stuff like that uh but as as like a global system and as like global phenomena these booms and busts uh happen uh in California and on the same timeline as the incorporation of Anglo-American California into the world system, which is with the second half of the 19th century into the 20th century. Um, and so California, I think has a, and the Bay area and Palo Alto really in particular as a, a special relationship to those booms and busts, partly because capital from all over the world uh, has consistently found great opportunity in this place and in these industries and that has contributed and, and allowed those booms and busts to take place in this place uh, to a disproportionate level
0: why why is it that like when you talk about uh, the settlers first coming in to california like this was not like a really an attractive proposition at first like there there wasn't like industry there it was beautiful and it had like lots of biodiversity um but it it didn't like a lot of like w- what you call uh, weirdos sort of came mm-hmm. in you had to be like kind of a, a weird person to like make the trek out there um at how at what point did it become evident to uh like speculators and uh, people who manage capital that this would be a good investment?
1: Well, it was from the from that uh, 1849, right? Gold strike is a pretty good investment. And so capital, and even before there, there was some capital mining capital in California, um, even when it was Mexican territory, that like some of the big European families had some investments in that, in like the Mexican territory of Alta California. So. There had been capital there, uh, but the boom with 49 and then after 49 into the, the 50s with the gold rush uh, really attracted the, the tons of capital, right? It was the rush described workers, but it also described the movement of capital and the movement of capital subordinated the movement of labor pretty quickly. So, you go from like the independent gold miner, you know, Yosemite Sam type with his pan in the river, uh, really does not last very long at all. And capital uh, puts men to work as workers to look for gold uh, pretty quickly. And so then you've got them like working different kinds of like hydraulic technologies that instead of just like panning the river, you're creating rivers and pointing them at mountains to try and, uh, you know, filter as much of the land as you possibly could very, very quickly. And so, and which is rewarding, right? It's like, and the fact that it's gold itself and then silver itself uh, in the other nearby silver strikes, make it a lot easier to convert to money because it is money. And so you don't have to do much like circulating. It's not like you got to send the gold back to Europe to have it be valorized and then send it back to the West coast. It can be invested straight away. Um, and so a lot of gold sticks around, right? Uh, and from that point, it becomes this real center of capital investment.
0: You, you also mentioned uh, Leland St- Stanford in there, who you know, in this time of sort of like renaming buildings and all this, like how, how has this guy gotten away with this? Like (laughs) he seems like a pretty unsavory character.
1: Well, it's his school. And so they, they, it points to the real limits of the renaming stuff strategy because they're never going to be able to rename Stanford university as long as Stanford university exists. That's part of the, you know, the covenant with the school, there's no way they can do it. Um, and that point, again, points to the the limits of that like, oh, we're gonna fix things by renaming them. because uh, if you can't rename them, that's this that's just a limit to fixing it, right? Um So the like he won, right? That's how it's able to stick around. like he and Jane Stanford like successfully endowed this school and secured the like, Unique tax status for it at the time, such that it would continue to grow and accumulate. Um, and Herbert Hoover helped, uh, obviously, in the book, and I'm sure we we can talk about that. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a very successful project, and I don't think their their name isn't just on the school; it's on the resumes of so many powerful people in this country and around the world now.
0: Yeah, that w- when you say he won. That's an interesting point because, uh, you know, bringing in Herbert Hoover, who is a guy who, you know, when people talk about like the judgment of history mm-hmm. is considered to be judged like quite harshly of like, oh, this guy was a failed president. Um, but you look at like the Hoover Institution and what's that and what like that has done. And, you know, maybe he is judged, but his ideas and his worldview have Uh, I mean, I don't know. Do you feel like they've won?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think it's it's important to think about him as outliving Roosevelt, because I think that the way that we're taught Hoover as a historical character, if we're taught him really at all, is as the guy who caused the depression and couldn't fix it and lost to Roosevelt in 32, and then he goes away forever but he like lives into the sixties, right? Like uh, he's like, uh, in fact, impacting politics into the sixties and has a a real profound effect on the post-war order. So it's not just like it is, founding the Hoover Institution is very important and he does that, you know, post-presidency. I think his terms at commerce, he starts, he's the first secretary of commerce um, and serves the first two terms uh, of that department's existence as the Secretary of Commerce. From that position, he profoundly reshapes the federal government in ways that endure throughout Roosevelt. And in fact, that Roosevelt gets credit for uh, a number of things like housing policy and energy policy, um, uh, airplane policy. There are a number of things that like Hoover really should get more credit vis-a-vis Roosevelt than he does. Roosevelt gets too much credit. and so Hoover has that like historical grudge, but he also, you know, Truman calls him in to help sell the Marshall project post-war. Right. And he goes in and it's a lot of like Hoover associates who are building the post-war order in Germany. You know, Hoover is himself in Germany, working on German reconstruction. Uh, his associates are running Japan, they're running the Philippines, you know, like the, the these are very, very, very important jobs for what the world order shapes into in the next era. So I think definitely one of the like main theses of the book, it turns out, I did not plan on writing the book this way, just like it happened to be, uh, is that Hoover comes out of the 20th century uh, as the victor and our historiography hasn't really caught up to that reality yet.
0: Why did these politicians who had beaten herbert hoover choose him to, to like draw in like w- was he well respected i guess he, he must have been
1: well it was partly because the conservatives who betrayed hoover because he really was betrayed in the early 30s uh, around the election in 32 you know no one ever got whomped as hard as as hoover got whomped in 32 and there was uh, a profound loss of confidence in him even before that. They were discussing taking off the ticket. And a bunch of, uh, you know, members of the big bourgeoisie backed Roosevelt instead of him in the elections. So like DuPont, Hearst, you know, some of the big really right wing capitalists backed Rose- lost faith in Hoover and backed Roosevelt. Uh, in the, by the post-war years, they were feeling very apologetic about that. And as a result of the new deal had turned very hard against Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. Um, And they looked back to their champion Hoover sort of apologetically, I think. Um, And he was still very influential and he still had a lot of friends and he had spent his whole career and his time uh, in the executive branch and before Promoting his fellows, his associates, uh, his friends. And so he knew a lot of very important people in a lot of important places, and they had good reason to feel positively inclined toward him because uh, people turned against Rooseveltism pretty quick on the right, right? You know, there's a, yeah. a period of broad popular support for Roosevelt, but that evaporated uh, uh, very quickly.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that that Herbert Hoover and and he was sort of a backer of Barry Goldwater, right?
1: That ends up being his sort of last political decision uh as a as a living man. And so I talk about in the last he spends the last sort of years of his life looking for the right guy to back for the next round. And he doesn't like Nixon, which is kind of funny even though they're both like Quakers from California and relate to a lot of the same like history. He just like Nixon's not a likable guy. He doesn't like Nixon, and being likable was very important to Herbert Hoover. Um, and he he backs MacArthur. MacArthur doesn't win. Um, you know he's he's unsuccessful. He doesn't like Eisenhower. Eisenhower's too moderate. Um, ends up backing Goldwater. Goldwater doesn't win. He dies. Uh, but it's really Reagan who is the guy that Hoover had been looking for or looking to create. Mm -hmm. And it's the Hoover institution more than any other like proper noun other than maybe like Nancy Reagan who creates Ronald Reagan. And even that like who is Ronald Reagan, like Ronald Reagan isn't Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is like the flesh suit who played Ronald Reagan, you know, like (laughs) the actual Ronald Reagan was a committee of 30 people in an office somewhere. And that, the place where that office was before they joined the, the White House was Palo Alto. Uh, and we don't think about like, you know, the smoky back rooms of late 20th century conservatism being in Palo Alto, California. But it totally was like it was it was at least as important as anywhere else. And like that's where Reagan gets ordained as the future president. That's where George W. Bush later gets ordained as the future president in a like bizarrely parallel sequence to Reagan. Um, So
0: George W. Bush get ordained
1: once again, like at the Hoover Institute or by the Hoover Institution fellows at the home of George Schultz. Mm-hmm. which is the exact same process that Reagan undergoes before he's selected uh, as the Republican nominee. And it really is a process of selection, and especially it was for George W. Bush. Um, and he like has to try out, basically, for the the Hoover Fellows. And, of course, Condoleezza Rice, who's the Stanford provost, ends up playing a, a like key advisory role in the Bush administration. Um, so, yeah, again, this is... Uh, A long and deep history that herbert hoover sort of sets in place and herbert hoover is part of the first class at leland stanford junior university you know class of 1891 or 1895 i guess is when he graduates uh so it really does go all the way back and not in a metaphorical linking sort of way but in a really direct you know 1960s is not that long ago from to now those people were still alive they could touch hands with Herbert Hoover and some of them did
0: yeah what and what's so weird is that when you talk about the 60s and um you know that there's an element of like Palo Alto culture that is like this sort of like hippie-ish uh like you know Steve Jobs famously dropped acid and uh there's kind of like this uh I I don't know, live and let live sort of vibe. Uh, And that's not like, the you know, it's not orthogonal to the the Silicon Valley tech world. It's like pretty like embedded in the culture. Mm -hmm. How do those two strands like meet? How are they compatible? Uh,
1: Well, it's a, in their self flattering uh, story about themselves, right? And that is like so many of the stories you get about Silicon Valley is this conflation of not just the industry and the counterculture, but also like the industry and the counterculture and the new left and like anti-war politics. And so if you look at like John Markov's book, what the Dormouse said, it's got like a peace sign on the cover as if that was like the politics of the early tech industry or whatever and that's just wrong they were all military contractors and they were like and a lot of them were pro-war it wasn't just that they were military contractors it's that they were like anti-communist military contractors looking to support the American victory in the cold war and so part of the one thing I was really trying to accomplish with the book was to change that historiography a little bit and break that conflation of the new left with the counterculture because I think it's wrong, um, and it puts people's focus in the wrong place, and the results have been pretty deleterious for people's understanding of Silicon Valley and Palo Alto history. And like, that's what they think is the most important thing. When you you know you talk to them about it, they're like, "Oh yeah, the counterculture and Steve Jobs and stuff." And like, Fred Turner's book is important as a study of a very like particular thing or whatever. Uh, but it's not what was happening, you know, like the Grateful Dead were not the most important thing going on at the time. The Cold War was the most important thing going on at the time. And so that's the history that I'm trying to like put the region back
0: at the center of. Have you watched uh, Adam Curtis's Century of the Self? I have. Okay. So you you probably, he makes this argument in there that I'm curious your thoughts on of like this, these hippies being based on like self-actualization and a lot of them just become like anti-politics. And there's this feeling that part of like the sort of the ethic of Silicon Valley is like, well, like a lot of these like political problems are like really messy and hard to solve. So we're just going to like go off into the corner over here and like work on stuff and uh you know not deal with politics do, do you think there's like a connection there uh
1: yeah i think it's wrong um and i i told i told him so basically uh and you know adam curtis has the he hit me up he's got the book uh i told him that it might not have exactly what he's looking for based on the cover um Cause I think again, like that's the sort of Californian ideology stories, this essay, the Californian ideology. And it does a very direct conflation of the new left and the counterculture in a way that's just wrong. And so I like, you know, the depiction of Jane Fonda for example, and her exercise videos in the century of self which is like a central point of the whole movie is so totally wrong because, like, those, those, the whole money from those whole projects went to like support left wing electoral causes. And, and like, it, like, I don't know, it's really a culturalist uh, form of analysis. Uh, so, I hope my book has some inoculating effect because I think those narratives are very prevalent, um, especially on today's left.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. Um, that like this narrative is, is not uh, is more complicated than it appears. I, I I do feel like there's something to the idea of uh so, you know this what is sometimes referred to as like a libertarian uh ethos in uh, Palo Alto and this like don't tread on me vibe where uh, sort of like the the rebel quote unquote nature of uh these these people like steve jobs um there's something like anti-society about it and like hyper individual and well you have
1: to look at when though because so if you're talking about the like 60s generation yeah, that they're the exact opposite. Right. So this is if you look at like Fairchild and like Hewlett Packard or whatever, this is an era of like clean cut former soldiers who were homecoming kings, you know, scholar athletes, everyone likes them best. That's how they got picked to learn all this computer stuff because their access to these training things were decided by superiors in the army and then wherever the army like stationed them to learn in school. And you like look at the picture of the Fairchild guys, and they're all clean-cut dudes in suits, uh, and like they were they worked for the government. They all worked for the government, and when they were doing when they did their own capitalist spin-offs, they were still working for the government, basically exclusively uh, as sub subcontractors for gov- government projects. Uh, you can then go to the the personal computer era, where you have folks like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. Um, you know, learning to code at their private schools, you know, dropping out of college, never joining the military. They don't play any sports. They smell bad. Uh, People like don't like them or whatever. They're rebels. But that was like what the president was telling them to do, right? This is the era of Reagan. And so then if you like look at uh, what Steve Jobs looks like very quickly into the 80s, uh, when he's actually running Apple computer, he looks exactly like Tucker Carlson to <laughs> the degree that I think Tucker Carlson based his look off of Steve Jobs in the 80s. He's got a bow tie, literally like suit, like tux and bow tie, like hair combed to the side, like the annoying conservative kid in your class. And that's who he was. And it was like that wasn't, that's not like a rebel in terms of American values—that's exactly what American values uh, like pointed to. It might have been have some like, you know, pretensions of individualism or whatever, but like that's because they were destroying the social safety net, and that's who they needed folks to idolize or whatever. But that wasn't like relative to American society rebellious. Like that was in fact rewarded. Yeah you know, with millions and millions of dollars by American society, right? Like, uh, and so they like telling the sort of rogue story vis-a-vis the previous generation of tech entrepreneurs, which makes sense, but that's because American capital and American society and the American project needed something different from their entrepreneurs, right? Like the strategy of America changes between like being a sort of rooseveltian uh lead the world through the expansion of production and increased uh living standards for everyone to the reagan era where they say ah fuck it we're gonna have to kill a bunch of people well here's,
0: here's my thing i i agree it's not rebellious in terms of like like going out and starting a company and you know uh having you know, women in their kitchen put together your your chips. Yeah, that that isn't rebellious. But I I mean it more in the sense that like the Confederate flag was called the Rebel flag, and like the Columbine kid, he, w- one of them, his his nickname, his self imposed nickname was a uh, Reb, short for Rebel. Mm-hmm. And I feel like th- this w- when I talk about um, Rebel, I mean Rebel against not the values of your society, but almost like the idea of society and mm-hmm. making people more like atomized, like what your relationship with your phone is, you are one person looking at your phone, as opposed to like, you know, we've destroyed theaters. And that's an audience of people gathering in one place, watching, you know, a shared experience. Um, that um That's kind of more what I mean by like, rebel. I, again, I don't know if you feel like that even that I
1: mean they had they had they had all sorts of different stories though about how the internet was going to connect us through our computers and I think they believed that to a certain to a pretty like high degree really thought that the like the rationalization of human connection through computers would lead to more human connection uh And, like, people have all sorts of stories about how their technology is going to work or not work. And they usually tell, like, positive ones about society uh, one way or the other. So, like, with Apple, you get, like, the 1984 uh, commercial, right, about 1984, about how the personal computer was going to liberate us from oppressive, you know, state systems right you're gonna like smash the window of whatever that's still a pro-social message right it's an individualizing pro-social message but it's a pro it's still a pro-social message and like uber still has a pro-social message even if like it is extremely individualizing and destroys the cab cartels and does all turns everybody into whatever it's all there original narrative is all about like the sharing economy and we're all going to share the cars and there'll be fewer cars on the road because we're going to share the cars that we already have. Uh, And like, you can tell that's why I think like basing your understanding of these histories off of a story or one story or another that sounds good to you. Isn't really good enough because like a lot of the stories sound pretty good, but really if you look at, how long that story even lasts like maybe you get like the beginning of the 80s late 70s you know period but even by but certainly by 9 11 you have the tech industry is fully patriotic they're like look you want us to spy on people we'll spy on people like in fact we would love to get some great spy contracts and it's all about supporting america and like, that's what Teal and stuff are saying, but also what Larry Ellison is saying. And that's what like a lot of the tech industry is saying. But even before that in the nineties, you had like a sizable part of the, the tech industry supporting George W. Bush. Um, they're really excited that John Ashcroft is gonna be attorney general and is going to like set up internet regulation because he's anti-regulation. He's pro-capitalist and pro-internet companies. And it doesn't matter that he is a theocrat who wants to like impose the Ten Commandments on people? Uh, as far as the tech industry is concerned, he's great because he's uh, you know doesn't want to break up their companies for being monopolies. So the like the the story that they tell about themselves relates to so like you've got the Rambo story at the same time, right? So Rambo is as a government soldier who's being oppressed by the government because he's not being allowed to be a soldier for the government. Yeah. And it's like, is that an anti-author? Is it like, is Rambo an anti-authoritarian message? Well, sort of, because it's about how like they, the government and the powers that be are stopping Rambo from being Rambo. So like, absolutely. And that's the whole movie is about, you know, First Blood and, and the later ones especially are about how the government's stopping him. But at the same time, like, what does being Rambo mean? It means just winning the Cold War, straight up. <laughs> like that's yeah. what it's always meant, um, and that's what it's meant for Palo Alto too. So, I think we need to understand those stories not in terms of the like cultural style that they advance for us. You know, Dirty Harry, same thing. I'm the the cops won't let me be a cop. I'm the cop who's being (laughs) oppressed by the cops because they won't let me cop. What does being a cop mean? Well, shooting the bad guys in the face, right? Like, okay, (laughs) like uh, making sure no one can violate societal rules. And if they do, I, the agent of authority, murder them. Like that's, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's not like anti-authoritarian it's authoritarian, it's the authorities. Um, So we need to like press on those the stories a little bit and get to the actual substance of the historical project that they're engaged in rather than the sort of like dream level effective psychological positioning about like do you feel like an underdog or not
0: yeah yeah, yeah. what what did, what did Adam Curtis say uh when you told him that by the way just curious
1: oh he was just like oh the book sounds cool to have your publicist? Can you have your publicist send me a copy? And I was like, Yeah, sure, man. Uh, not sure it's gonna have exactly what you think it might be, but hope you enjoy. And yep. I do. I hope you enjoy.
0: Yeah, he's an interesting dude. Um, w- one of the things that I wanted to uh, to ask you about is I- I've heard you uh, say in some some interviews that uh, this this rise of AI, you're, you're skeptical of it in terms of its uh, economic utility. Uh, is that like an accurate uh characterization of your feeling yes okay uh
1: i I like i don't know what they're going to use it for
0: hmm i i i feel like i've i've used it for like coding and stuff like that it's been like like a productivity boost um and i'm like one small unit but across a lot of people that, that that might be some economic advancement or, or I guess
1: what? it's like, you don't have to what you don't have to like go to stack overflow and find the code to copy. And instead it just like finds it for you. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know.
0: Like, yeah, kind of. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, like a way better stack overflow. Yeah. Um,
1: right. But it's like, that's not the, like the, the productivity advantages of that. And again, like then you also have to check it. Right. And then it's like an extra step of, so it's like, yeah, I could see four coders, uh, Maybe that's a little bit of increased efficiency, but again, like that's in a uh, a world where you can just like take stuff and copy it, uh, and totally. it works for your function too, and that's not a like intellectual property violation for the most part. Um, doesn't work that way with writing, <laughs> uh, which is mostly yeah. what they're talking about is language. So like, and again, and again, like. What's the point of automating bullshit jobs? This is the part I don't get. It's like people are like, oh, yeah, it's really great for like sending emails and answering emails. And it's like, OK, great. So you just like have this machine talk to itself if your job has no nexus to productivity. But like it can't make anything new. It, it can't. And so like the if you're automating jobs that don't do anything anyway, uh, where is the productivity boost going to come from?
0: yeah i mean the thing is i think i think uh i don't know if you read that uh david Graeber book bullshit jobs but like
1: on my shelf somewhere over over there nice that one
0: yeah fantastic book um because i i I have at, at various points in my life had what i felt like are bullshit jobs um and i think there are just a lot of jobs like that like a lot and that if, if they can automate that away, then I don't know, maybe, maybe like that'll, that could be like millions of jobs.
1: But, but, but that doesn't mean that it adds anything to productivity. So that'll, well, you know, if you're, if you're a company, you can say like, Oh, we're going to use this technology to reduce our labor costs. Yeah. Um. So, right. It's a, it's a good way. It's like could possibly be a way of attacking the wage, yes. but again, th- so that may, it might add to efficiency but that doesn't like that it still has no nexus to production right like we're not we're not expanding uh what we're doing as a result of that and especially if these jobs themselves are not productive if they're bullshit jobs then it's not like you can look at this and say like wow bullshit jobs are so cheap now i should get i should hire for more of them uh because it's bullshit like you don't have any more bullshit that you need to do because it's cheaper Uh, so like maybe there'll be like more SEO pages, but like, there's a declining utility to those. Like, I just don't, it's not clear to me when I see something that like, Oh, Coca-Cola is going to team up with open AI, which is some like head on headline that I saw. Yeah. And I read that. I'm just like to do like, to do what? Like, and it sounds like the crypto or blockchain stuff. Um, and it's being used very similarly, I think which is to signal to the market that you're like have some plan to grow or innovate around your company without having to like explain what the fuck that actually is. Cause like, how is open AI going to help Coke sell more Coke? Like Coke doesn't have a problem selling Coke and it's not going to like reformulate it with AI. Like, the The problem with these come with the company Coca Cola is that they don't have any problems, right? Like, what they don't no problems means you don't have somewhere good to invest more capital to solve those problems, so that you can then grow more. And if you don't don't have problems, then you don't have problems to solve. So then you need to issue like false solutions, like, oh, we're gonna use AI to solve our problems. Like, what problems? unclear like maybe some labor costs or something like maybe we'll automate some jobs what jobs unclear to what end not sure like it's not going to end up making more soda
0: yeah yeah it what's interesting is like how how fast the hype on ai has happened we're like obviously this has been going on research into has been going on for like decades uh but it feels like within the past year everyone's become like there's a panic, and there's like wild enthusiasm that I do think it's more substantive than the crypto world. But I think you're right that a lot of like even during the dot com bubble, companies like valuations would balloon if you just added the word dot com mm-hmm. to like a company name. Um, th- this and this kind of gets back to what we we're talking about about like the hype cycles. Like, is this is this common across other industries? I mean, it, it doesn't like i i don't know it doesn't feel like uh, agriculture has these same like wild enthusiasms about like you know new factory farming methods like
1: well, no well and it, and when they do it's led by silicon valley right and so you like if you want to invest in vertical farming or whatever invest in silicon valley you want to farm stuff without the sun <laughs> we've got a great <laughs> new plan uh turns out not a great plan but very silicon valley plan right doesn't mean you can't absorb a ton of capital uh yeah I think it, you're right that it is maybe slightly more substantial than crypto but it is like I think substantially the same issue and so then you got to look at like what purpose does this really serve for capital what problem is this solving and the fact that you can generate these speculative bubbles is really important because again like you need somewhere somewhere to put that money Coca-Cola, once again, doesn't have problems. And not having problems as a capitalist firm is a really scary place to be. That's a really big problem because then you can't enhance your growth numbers, right? It's all downhill from there. Uh, It's only when you can solve your big problems that you have new opportunities for big spurts of growth. and so you have these like things that seem like all-purpose solutions, and that's why they like scale really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's the dot coms, right, the internet, which and people can make the same and have and continue to make the same argument about uh, the internet. Paul Krugman famously, and people like, give him a bunch of shit for it, saying that like you still can't find it in the productivity uh, statistics. Like You still can't find where the internet has made thing, people more productive um, and that it has like helped the economy. Obviously, we do a lot of things economically related to the internet, but that doesn't mean that it actually has played some important role relative to production. And so I think you see the same thing, maybe more dramatized with some of this other stuff.
0: Do you think that the changing like interest rate environment is going to affect these boom and bust cycles?
1: No, I think that the, the common thinking on that is kind of backwards. Um, it's that like in a, in a tight interest rate environment, um, People have been telling themselves that, like, oh, that means that you like are more likely to invest in bad businesses because you know, like, other ones can't give you as high a interest rate. Uh, but there's no reason it shouldn't be the opposite. You know, uh, like the, the way people are telling these stories doesn't quite make sense. And if you look at the the history of these bubbles in Silicon Valley relative to the interest rate. Uh, doesn't really have any correlation, right? It's not like the dot-com era needed low interest rates um, to blow themselves up. Uh, And so I think that's like looking for a clean causal answer when what we've seen is as these interest rates have come down, tons and tons of capital pile into increasingly speculative Silicon Valley bullshit. So open AI and all of these AI companies are uh, perfect examples of the kind of projects that you would say, oh no, no, we can't do that anymore uh, because high interest rates means that like these companies won't be able to get any investment. But here they are getting tons and tons of investment because they're the only ones who turns out can offer something that can approach those high interest rates. And so that makes us more likely to invest in them now. Um, so you see a lot of like, just so stories around interest rate policy, and I just don't think it's as important, uh, to these investment decisions as people seem to think it is.
0: It, it does seem important in terms of like disciplining the labor force where like tech workers, uh, there've been a lot of layoffs, um, and a, a lot of like those workers are on like H1B visas. Mm-hmm. And, like I'm, I'm sure you know, like people who are on those visas, or like anyone who's like, it, they they appear as though they're and they are making like hundreds of thousands of dollars often, but a lot of them are like living in a state of terror because mm-hmm. it's, okay, if you lose your job, you got a short window of time to find another one, or else like you're gone. Yep. Um, and do you feel like these layoffs are potentially? um more driven by this desire to like discipline the, uh, the workforce than like economic need.
1: Yeah, certainly than like operating cost concerns. Cause these are, I mean, if you look at those numbers relative to the hiring boom that happens during the pandemic, they barely scratch the surface, right? It's not like these companies are actually cutting their labor costs. And for the most part, you know, there are some that are shuddering like ill conceived past plans that were just st- stock market speculative moves being like, oh, we're shutting down our metaverse operations because like that was fake uh, and we were never going to do anything like that. Uh, And it doesn't work anymore to juice the stock price so we can get rid of it. Uh, But they're not like, oh, we're going to, you know, that like, Oh, Facebook should be a smaller company. And so we're going to shrink our company down to a modest size where we can make an operating profit and then return dividends to our shareholders. It's not like they're like a neighborhood hardware store who's like, Oh, we can't make payroll. We have to like lay off some people so that we can afford to keep doing our business. I guess we like can't open the second office now. It's nothing like that.
0: So w- w- one thing I wanted to uh, to ask you about before we left here, um, I read before this uh, the, this this chat uh, a review in the New York Times of your book mm. It was uh, it was uh hugely flattering uh compared you to uh, <laughs> at, at one point it compared you to uh, uh Stalin, Mao and Robespierre um which I, I don't know if that's a lifetime achievement for you <clears throat> but, uh, I, uh, I I was curious um it it says in there one of its critiques. Its main critique, I think, was that you you don't do enough to emphasize the positives of Palo Alto, uh, which I don't think is quite true, because you do talk about uh, a lot of like activists, work and artists and stuff like that, who I think uh, you admire. Um, I, I guess maybe more to their what, what they're trying to say is, um, is there any part of the, uh, the tech world uh, that you find uh, positive or even inspiring?
1: Like, I don't have to even go to like positive or inspiring because like, <laughs> I talk about uh, Andy Bechtelsheim. And like, if you read the, his- the standard histories of Silicon Valley, they barely, barely, barely mention this dude. Uh, and if they do maybe it's like centered around him being one of the first guys to invest in Google because he's a like computer science professor at Stanford who invests in Google because he like knows those students. Uh, He's like a key inventor in this whole history. He's the one who's like duping of the Alto board at Stanford, basically like creates the entire internetworking era, and like he starts Sun Microsystems. But it's also his work that leads to the box that Cisco Systems rips off. You know, it's his circuit that uh, Silicon Graphics ends up using. And then the founder of Silicon Graphics ends up using the money they got from that to start Netscape Uh, and Andy Bechtolsheim just because he's not like a braggart, you know, he's still worth hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars at this point. Uh, He's hugely successful, hugely influential um, tech inventor, entrepreneur guy who was also like a really legit computer scientist whose work on this was like important um in terms of like advancing the technology to the point where it could be used for internetworking the way it was and he gets left out of almost all of these histories like i saw that like the computer history museum did a recent thing history of the alto and like he doesn't even get a mention in that history and it's because so much of even just the computer industry history is written around this like self-promoting business dudes that they don't even like do a good job of talking about the technological history itself. And someone like Bechtelsheim, who's so key to so much of the tech, gets, you know, nudged out of the way because he's not Steve Jobs. Yeah. No. Steve Jobs isn't one-tenth the technologist that Bechtelsheim was, didn't have one-tenth of the influence in terms of his like engineering work such that it was. Uh and yet, he's the paradigmatic, you know, tech founder guy. And these same sort of things happened back to the radio age. So uh, I don't think they even do a good job telling tech history, even just on its own terms. So uh, I think that that criticism is what they don't like. They really don't like is being reminded what the actual project of Silicon Valley has been this whole time. Um, and I can't I can't help them with that.
0: Fair enough. Malcolm, thank you very much for your time. The book is Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism and the World. Uh, I assume people can buy it wherever uh, books are sold. I sure hope so.
1: All right.
0: Uh, Malcolm, thanks again. Uh, Pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks again for having me, Duncan. And we'll be back with the next one.
0: Perfect. Take care. You too. Thank you to Malcolm Harris, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.